0: Well, my name is Pastor Tellus. I'm the youth pastor here on staff at Grace Covenant Church, and I'm really excited to bring the word to us today. If you would, would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 or turn on your phones to John chapter 20? We're in a time right now um, where it's really easy to question, inquire, and even doubt about a lot that's going on in the world. It's almost like information is unable to be taken at face value, that there's always one side that's saying one thing and one side that's saying another. And we find ourselves maybe caught in the middle, if you're like me, where we, at best, are trying to be informed, at best, trying to be realistic, and at worst, we're doubting everything entirely. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk to and talk about some people who were doubting. If you've recently doubted in this past season, this message is for you. If you've doubted in a recent season, this message is for you. If you feel like doubt might be coming for you in the next season, this message is for you. And we're going to be talking talking about one of the most famous doubters in all of the Bible. Some of you already know where we're going. I want to take us to John chapter 20, verse 25 through 27. And it says this. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, this is Thomas speaking, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them, saying, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve or do not doubt, but believe. What I want to talk about this morning to us is this idea and the title of my message is the Disposition of Doubt the disposition of doubt. I want to talk about three things. One, the consequences of doubt. Two, the origins of doubt. And three, the remedy for doubt. The disposition of doubt. Will you pray with me real quick? Father, we love you so much. God, I'm asking that you would do what we can't do in this moment, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and hear everything that you want to speak. Lord, you grace this place. Help all of us who are listening Help all of us who are in the room that we may see you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, this is a famous story we find in the Gospels. This is a story that's a little needs requires probably a lot of context for a lot of us. We see in this moment right here, this is post-resurrected Jesus. But at the time that we see this Jesus, at the time that we see the disciples they are still scared out of their minds. Right before this chapter, we see that Jesus has died. He's been crucified. He's been laid in a tomb, and he has been resurrected. And the only person to actually have seen the resurrected Jesus so far, other than his disciples, is Mary Magdalene. And we see Mary who approaches the, the, the tomb, and, and, and this is the famous moment where she mistakes Jesus for the gardener, right? She sees this man. She says, oh, where have you laid him? Where have you placed his body? And then Jesus reveals himself to her, and then she says, Rabboni, this beautiful moment where she reunites with her Savior. And then we see that she goes and tells the disciples, and we see Peter and John who sprint towards the tomb, and they find an empty tomb, but they don't find Jesus, and they walk back wondering what could have happened here. When they walk back and all of them and the other disciples, the 10 who are there, Judas isn't there and and Thomas isn't there. They're sitting in this room, locked the doors for fear of the Jews, thinking, well, if they killed our Savior, what are they going to do to us? They're locking themselves in this room for fear of the Jews. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks through this locked door. He walks through the door, says, peace be with you. He he gives them the Holy Spirit in this moment. And then all of a sudden, we're met with this moment where we realize that there's somebody missing. And the man that's missing is a man named Thomas. And when you think about Thomas, if you've been in church for a while, there's probably a word that you relate with him. When we see a lot of different people who follow Jesus, we usually have some story to go along with their story. We see some, some context that goes along with it. If you see Paul, formerly known as Saul, we know that he had an amazing conversion, right? He was this road to Damascus who was going and persecuting people who followed Jesus, ends up seeing Jesus for himself, and ends up being actually the greatest apostle, the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the man who testifies about Jesus, the man who suffered for Jesus. We see uh, Peter, right, a man who was called out of a boat to fish for men. We see a a rash and and boisterous guy, but who was wholly committed to Christ, the man who had the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the man who uh, actually, Jesus said he would build his church upon that revelation, Peter who walked on water. We see John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see John, who who was kind of quiet and introspective, but also a man who was passionate about loving his Savior. We see Mary Magdalene, who had demons in her and was, was saved by Christ, cast out these demons, and she ends up being recklessly devoted to him, wherever he was she wanted to be. We see all these different characters and people in the Bible, and then we see Thomas. And if you've been in church for a while, then you probably have a word that you associate with Thomas. And on three, we'll say it together one, two, three doubt, right? Doubting Thomas. If I were Thomas, I would hate this. I'd be like, man, Peter gets all these things, he's boisterous but he still gets to be the guy who, who uh, Christ builds his church upon his revelation. Mary had demons in her, and yet she's still somebody who's looked favorably upon in the scriptures. We see uh, 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 Saul who killed Christians, and yet people love him. And then I'm the guy who followed Jesus for years. I'm the guy who was with him through thick and thin, except for this moment. And, and all of a sudden, we associate this word with him. Why? do we do this? I think the reason that we do this is because we as humans are really good at seeing a snapshot and telling a story, right? That we see one part of something and end up making that that person's identity. Why? Because we see in this moment that Thomas in this moment was doubting. Now, I don't think that Thomas was a doubter. I think that Thomas doubted. And Thomas in this moment, I don't believe that he was even uh, 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 hesitant to follow Jesus. Why? Because if we really look and take a, take a, a moment to search into the story of Thomas, what we're going to see is that he was actually a courageous follower of Christ. If we go back to John 11, you remember that uh, Jesus, one of his best friends, Lazarus, was dying. Jesus had just left this place called Judea. He's been preaching, and people know him. He's been renowned, and some people love him. Some people hate him. And at the end of this uh, moment, Jesus says, well, okay, guys, disciples, we have to go back to Judea, and we have to go get Lazarus. And it's this moment where he says he's fallen asleep, but I'm going to raise him. And the disciples say something really interesting in this moment. The disciples all kind of collectively are like, uh, let's not go back to Judea because the last time we were in Judea, they picked up stones and were ready to kill you, Jesus. And I don't really want to go back to the place where they were trying to kill us. So maybe let's just go to a different spot. And the only person that we see actually speak up in this moment is Thomas. And what we would think about Thomas, this, this, this story that we've told from a snapshot of his life that he's a doubter, Thomas actually says in, in, in John chapter 11, actually, no, guys, let's stop doing that. Let us go back with him that we may die with him. Those are Thomas's words. He sees a moment where he can, he, Thomas balls up. He, he, he balls out. He's like, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. If Jesus is going to die, I'm going to die. That's what he says. Like, if you're dying, bro, I'm dying with you. It was Peter, but kind of more realistic, right? Jesus Peter was like, oh, I'm never going to do that. But Thomas in this moment literally was like, if you're dying, I'm dying. And guys, we are going to go die with him. I don't think that Thomas was a doubter. I think that Thomas doubted. And we see a moment in a person's life and we mark them for the rest of their lives. It's what we do in culture. We see a, 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 a shortcoming of a person and say, now we define them as their shortcomings. And Thomas is a great example. I don't think that Thomas was a doubter. I think that Thomas doubted. And the beautiful thing about doubt, as we're going to see in the story, is that Jesus released the doubt way differently than we do. That Jesus has a different perspective of doubt than we do. Jesus, we see in this story, it doesn't, our doubt doesn't disqualify us from Jesus. We think that it probably would. We think that it would probably be really unhealthy for me to doubt. We, as Christians, sometimes in the church, we play hot potato with doubt if you know what I mean. We have a doubt. We say, no, get rid of it as soon as you can. Don't think that. Don't do that. It's a really dangerous thing. Get it out of your hands. Don't even think about it. And we start playing hot potato with doubt. As soon as we have a doubt, we try and get rid of it as soon as possible. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and faithfully believe God. I'm saying that your doubts are not a big deal to your God. I'm saying if our doubts can overpower our God, then maybe our God is too small. Our doubts are not bigger than our God. And some of us actually might be doubting the goodness of God in this time. We see what the world is like. We see where we're at and we end up doubting the goodness of God or maybe just finding it really difficult to believe him at his word, difficult to believe God's promises. And we end up actually uh, making our doubts bigger than our God. And what we really need to be do is shrinking our doubts and enlarging our God. And the way that we do that is that we take a look at the scriptures. We take a look at what Jesus said to be true and place it up against our lives and say, you know what? I think the best way that I can shrink my doubts is that I enlarge my God. Talk about the consequences of doubt. We see here in verse 25 that uh, the disciples actually have had a moment here before Jesus comes with Thomas. That they had actually already been in a room. Thomas wasn't there for some reason or another. And these 10 disciples, minus Judas, minus Thomas, were in this room. And this is after Jesus has risen. And actually what happens is that Jesus appears to them, says this, peace be with you, gives him his spirit. And then we find ourselves in, 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 in John chapter 20, verse 25. And we see here that, that Thomas makes this insane claim, this is unless I see his wounds, unless I put my hand inside of his wounds, unless I put my hand inside of his side, it's not that I won't doubt or I, I doubt, it's that I will never believe, Thomas says. I want to talk about the consequences of doubt. Doubt doesn't distance you from God, doubt discourages you from God. What do I mean by that? I mean that it doesn't take God away from us. It takes us away from God. That our doubts, whenever we doubt in God, it's not that God is getting further away to say, oh, you doubt me? Here's your punishment. I'm removing myself from the situation until you believe me. Then I'll reinsert myself. What we're doing is we are removing our belief from the situation when we doubt God. We are discouraging our faith in our doubt. And Thomas's doubt actually closed him off to the things of God. Why? Because Thomas was actually missing an essential part of experiencing Jesus because of his doubt. Thomas wasn't in the room. Thomas wasn't with the disciples when when, when they first saw Jesus appear. Because Jesus appeared twice. He appears with the disciples, the ten, and then he appears with Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. Now, why wasn't Thomas there? We could say Thomas wasn't there for the fear of the Jews, like the other disciples were in the first part. We could say Thomas wasn't there Because he was sad. We could say Thomas wasn't there because he was afraid. We could say Thomas wasn't there because he doubted. But at the end of the day, Thomas's doubt really acted as a defense mechanism. Because why? In this moment, we know that Thomas wasn't approaching Jesus for some reason or another because he wanted to protect himself from the hope that had died. And we see that hope is actually, hope's ashes It's the perfect soil for doubt. In the ashes of what we had once hoped for is perfect fertile soil for doubt to grow. Thomas wasn't there. Doubt promises to protect us from being disappointed again, but actually ends up secluding us into pessimistic places. The only thing that was supposed to protect his joy in his doubt actually ended up stealing from his joy because Thomas wasn't there. He wasn't in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. You guys, Hamilton, we all live the same quarantine, right? Thomas wasn't in the room where it happened. Why? Because his doubt. He removed himself from the situation because I had hoped that you were somebody You now died. My hope's ashes were there and doubt was the outcome. We can't say that Thomas was a doubter. If he was the same courageous Thomas a few chapters earlier in John chapter 11, where he said, actually, I'm going to take this moment and actually die with my Savior. I think that Thomas had a moment of doubt, not a lifestyle of doubt. And what we see in this story is that because of his doubt, he ended up missing out on joy. And what I see here because of this story is that when we set separate ourselves from the people of God we end up separating ourselves from certain blessings of God when we bring ourselves out of the people of God we end up bringing ourselves out of certain blessings of God why because 10 disciples got to see a resurrected Jesus and have him give them the holy spirit and one didn't now Jesus could have showed up to all of the disciples individually could he not Jesus could have showed up to everybody individually. In fact, actually, we know that he did show up to hun- hundreds of people at one time. So it's not that Jesus was like, oh, no, 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 that's impossible for me to do. It's that Jesus places a special blessing on the gathering of believers. And for some of us in this room right now, we might be saying, well, Pastels, is it's really hard to gather right now. Like gathering of believers, that's kind of taboo. I don't want to be seen as that. But let me tell you something right now. I I understand that it's really comfortable watching church from your home. But don't get too comfortable watching church from your home. That's not the way that church was meant to be done. God has called us to be the church, and I just want to let you know, it might not be today, and there are plenty of reasons why there is a, a, a good reason to stay at home if you are immunocompromised or whatever, and I just want to let you know that there is a time when we are coming back to the building, and it might not be this week for you. It was for a lot of people, for Kid Builders. It was for a lot of us, and I want to let you know, just get it in your head. I'm not going to stay on my couch all day long. I'm going to get back in the game. I'm going to come back to church, and we are so thankful for church online. We're so thankful that we can have church wherever we are. We're so thankful for church on demand, and let me tell you that there is a certain blessing placed on the gathering of believers that we don't get when we are a siloed believer. Thomas missed out on a blessing from God because he was a siloed Believer. And the scariest part is that he wouldn't have even known what blessing he missed out on if not for the persistence of the believers and the persistence of his God. Thomas would have just been out there. Because if we see in the story, it's actually the disciples who came to Thomas and said, you're never going to believe this. He's back. And Thomas is like, I will never believe unless I can touch him. And not just touch him, but touch him in every place that he hurt me. I'll never believe. And for one reason or another, I'd like to hope that was the persistence of his best friends, of the fellow disciples that brought him back to Jesus. And I really wonder what blessings do we not even know that we're missing out on because of our past disappointments? Thomas had a past disappointment. He thought that Jesus would do this. He hoped that Jesus would do that. And these past disappointments actually gave birth to his doubt. And are there any past disappointments in our lives that are giving birth to current doubt? giving birth to current places where we can't believe God, where it's too painful to believe God again, where it's too risky. I don't have enough faith. It it seems really dangerous to believe God for this because it didn't, he didn't show up here because I prayed that he would heal this and he didn't because I prayed that my kids would be different and they aren't because I prayed that he would deliver me from this and I'm still stuck. Because I prayed that I would be different and that addiction would stop. But guess what? It's still here. It's really difficult to hope in the ashes of doubt. And Thomas here was letting his past disappointments fuel his future. He was doubting. He was doubting. And the origins of Thomas's doubt are really, really important, I think, because Doubt is born from our past disappointments. It says in uh, Proverbs thirteen twelve, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Speaking about, there is a hope that we all have, and if that hope does not come true, it discourages us to the point where our heart becomes sick. Have you ever felt that? That you've had a moment where you hoped so strongly for one thing, it didn't come true, and now it hurts to hope Again? My hope is tired. Has your hope ever been tired? That it's, it's difficult and painful to hope again. And we need to go back to the Gospels in Luke 13, Matthew 16, 21. We don't have time to go there now. But these are two critical moments where Jesus actually told the disciples, hey, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And guess what? I'm going to be raised again on the third day. Don't worry. But this is what I've come to do. And every time Jesus says this, the disciples give their classic answer: "No, you won't. You, you're not going to die." And I'm like, "Why are you arguing with Jesus?" But okay. And they're like, "Well, you'll never. We'll never let you die. You're not. How could it be?" And 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 they always end up disagreeing with God when He says that He's going to die. They say, "No, God, may it never be. May it never be." And it sounds kind of romantic because we're like, "Oh, well, they care so much about Him. Like that's so sweet." those 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 precious disciples really really don't want him to die they want to spend their lives with him but really what i've i've gotten from this story is that disagreeing with god's word in one season can produce doubt in another that they they disagreed with god's word that he would die and be raised again in one season and then the next season when it actually happened it produced doubt Disagreeing with God's word in one season can produce doubt in another. It's not just a siloed event, but this actually formed his belief in God because he disagreed with God. And we might say, well, no, they just had faith. They they weren't disagreeing with God. They They just didn't want him to die. And at the end of the day, this disagreement produces unbelief. This disagreement produces doubt. And doubt, honestly, is like a cracked door. I remember when I was in college, me and my friends had this, uh, our first house, we'd moved out of the dorms, and we'd finally gotten into a house, and so all the things that go into keeping up with the house is kind of the first time that we were all doing this together, and I remember we got this awesome house, and we had all these people over all the time, and I remember at one point that uh, we noticed, like, little by little, that we would look around and just be, like, killing ants everywhere we looked, that... Like they weren't even big ants. They were just a lot of ants. And they would always just be like, first they started like by the couch near the door. And then all of a sudden they like made their way into the kitchen and we would have people over and all of a sudden we'd be talking to somebody like, yeah, man, classes are so good. I love like hanging, man, it's so good. Just don't look down. Just keep your head. And so we'd be like killing ants all the time. Right. And we were always like, man, this problem is getting worse and worse and worse. And where are all these ants coming from? And, and, and we would end up getting pretty embarrassed when company came over because we were like, oh my gosh, they're going to think we're disgusting. They're going to think we're, but we're not disgusting. Well, we're kind of disgusting, but like, we're not that disgusting. And like, how, how, how are these ants getting in here? And they're going to judge us. And, and we ended up not wanting to invite people over because we had an ant problem. And we're like, how, what is this going on? And, and I remember as we were like pretty much scouring our house, what happens is that we, we ended up looking, we saw that there was a little, little crack. Right by the door. There was a little crack right by the door. And as soon as, as, as we noticed the crack, we saw just this line of ants coming in and going out, coming in and going out. And I was like, it's crazy how one little crack in my house can produce so much anxiety in my life. And I wonder, is there a little crack in your house that you don't think is a big deal that you probably wouldn't even notice if you took inventory of your house? But all of the sudden, don't look over here. Just where are all these ants coming from? Where is all this doubt coming from? Where is all this worry coming from? Where is all this anxiety coming from? Why don't I have peace? I've been praying all the time. I've been going to church. I've been tithing. I've been doing all these things. Where is all this unrest coming from? Why am I so scared all the time? Why can't I keep a relationship going? Maybe there's a crack in your house. And we have to be really, really aware of openings because openings can quickly become infestations. The disciples disagreed with God's word in one season and it produced doubt in another. And now we see Thomas and we get to the remedy of doubt. And Thomas has this, this moment where Jesus walks inside the room and, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful scene when we look at it, but probably really, really visceral and painful for Thomas because it says eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas this time was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here And see my hands and put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think it's interesting that one of the first things that happen is that Jesus says, Peace. It's the first thing that happens when Jesus walks in the room. The doors are locked, disciples are terrified, and Jesus says, Peace be with you. Thomas, at this point, Of his life, he was face to face with his doubts and even closer to God's grace. He was looking straight forward at his doubts, seeing what they could be, seeing this moment where he's locked, and I wonder how much effort it took for the disciples to get him into that room. To say, man, just come on, be with us. Just come and hang out with us. Well, I, I bet you he's going to show up again. He'll do, he did it once, he'll do it again. I've seen you move, you moved the mountains, right? And they're singing these songs. They're like, he's going to do it again. And, and, and they get Thomas into this room. And then all of a sudden, Thomas is face to face with the very thing that he was terrified of. Face to face with his doubts. And the first thing that Jesus says, which I, if I was Jesus, the first thing I would say is, so you decided to show up today, to Thomas, right? And be like, okay, okay. What they made you do it? Or oh, you came by yourself. Oh, okay, okay. Remember that time you said you would die with me, and now I would like start chastising him, right? I'd be like, where have you been? You, I, the rest of your friends were here, the rest of the disciples were here. Where have you been? But that's not what we see Jesus doing. What do we see Jesus doing? But the first thing that Jesus says is peace. Be with you. This tells me that peace comes before proof in Christ. That peace will precede your proof. Because why? Thomas was, wasn't necessarily looking for that. He was, he was looking for proof. The last words that we find Thomas saying is, I will never believe unless I can touch him. I will never believe unless I can see it. I will never believe until he shows me physically, and not just in the form of a ghost, not a vision, not I'm hallucinating, but I need to be able to touch him. I'll never believe until this. And the first thing that Jesus does is that he gives them peace. For those of us who are doubting, What if we are looking for proof and God is providing peace? What if the thing that you're actually looking for is not the thing that you actually need? That Thomas found himself looking for proof and getting peace. He sees Jesus standing right before him. And the first thing that Jesus does, he says, peace be with you. And the reason I think Jesus does this is because if Jesus knew that if he gave him proof before he gave him peace, he would always be looking for proof and neglecting peace. From that point forward, he would always be saying, all right, I need more proof. Jesus gave me proof last time. He's going to give me proof this time. I need more proof. Jesus, soon he's not even going to be with him physically at all. So that's definitely not going to work for Thomas. That's definitely not going to work for his, his, his mission and going to take the gospel to unknown areas. And and we see that Jesus is the one who's providing peace before he provides proof. And there's doubt in Thomas because he was adamant. He wasn't even just doubting in that moment. He was rejecting the idea that Jesus was alive but saying, I will never believe. And then we get here, and, and, and if I were in this moment, I would probably be the type of person that says, okay, but... I get it, but how could they doubt in the first place? Like, these are the same guys who watched Jesus feed 5,000, right? These are the same guys who watched Jesus walk on water, right? Like, these are the same guys who watched Jesus cast demons out. Who watched Jesus prophesy and see what happened? Who watched Jesus heal people after people, heal leper after leper. And, and, and it's, it's, it's all so easy to take the snapshot and create the story that we say, hey, they lived with him. How dare they doubt him? If I were there, I never would have doubted if I was there. If I had seen Jesus and do all this stuff, I never would have doubted. But Thomas is a lot more like us than I think we would like to admit. We're a lot more like Thomas than we would like to admit. Why? Because Thomas always wants proof. Thomas always wants proof. And the issue is that Thomas didn't want proof in a spiritual sense, he wanted proof in a carnal sense. In, in his flesh, he wanted to be satisfied in what I thought. He wanted to be satisfied in what I believe. He wanted to physically touch him with his physical senses. And, and I think the reason Jesus didn't first give him that, that, that physical satisfaction was because Jesus knew something about the flesh that we didn't know. Jesus knew that the flesh is never full. That you can give as much proof as you want, but the flesh is never full. It's always going to say, well, if you God, if you would just show up in this way, I'll believe. If you would just help me in this area, I promise I'll be faithful to go to church. If you would just be with me in this, if you would help me in that, if you would restore this, if you would deliver from this, I promise I'll tithe, I'll go to church, I'll join a small group, I'll be here, I'll do that, I'll pray, I'll do anything you want me to do. If you, As long as you prove yourself to me, I'll prove myself to you. And we end up... Bringing God in on our own condition and being left wanting because the flesh is never full. It says it... Like this in in 2 Corinthians, this idea of that we're not supposed to focus on what is unseen, or what is seen, but we're supposed to focus on what is unseen. And and what is unseen is eternal, and what is seen is temporal. This beautiful idea and this truth that Paul is going to give us, because we don't understand that the things that are unseen are actually the things that matter. Why? Because the things that are unseen are the things that last. And the things that last are the things that matter. And Thomas was focusing on the things that he could see. He was focusing on the proof. And this is where we see Jesus who is first giving peace. But he doesn't just stop there. He does more. We see in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, when we focus on what is unseen over what is seen, we're actually training for eternity. We're actually telling our bodies, telling our souls Actually, this is more real than what I can physically see here. When we understand that our spiritual reality is more real than our physical reality, we will thrive in Christ we will really understand that there is a truth beyond what I can naturally perceive. And sometimes God is going to take me to the edge of where I actually know what to be true, the physical aspects of what I believe, and he's going to bring us beyond. And yet, Jesus actually still gives him this assurance. Thomas' doubts actually closed him off to God, but never closed God off to him. Thomas's doubts brought him away from community, brought him away from Jesus, but never brought Jesus away from him. Jesus actually pursued Thomas even when Thomas stopped pursuing Jesus. And there's no better way for us to, to see this maybe than in communion that Pastor Corey beautifully brought us through, is that there is a... Remembrance and a focus and intention on the person of Jesus that pursues us even when we don't pursue him. That remembers us even when we don't remember him. That chooses us even when we don't choose him. And the remedy for doubt is seen in these next verses. And if we get Stephen to come up here as I close, this is so important because this idea and this truth that our doubt closes us off to God but doesn't close God off to us is this truth right here, that God does not see our doubts like we see our doubts, that God is not looking at our doubts just like we see our doubts. In, in Psalm 103, it says, as a, father, um, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Jesus is not approving of Thomas's doubt. He's acknowledging Thomas's doubt. And how beautiful is it that we have a God who is compassionately acknowledging where we are weak? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for a God who doesn't see my weakness and pushes me aside and says, we'll wait for you to get better. You can come in when you believe. You can come in when you stop. You can come in when you do this. You can come in as soon as you clean yourself up just a little bit more. But a God who walks through our locked doors. A God who says, even in the midst of your doubt. A God who says, even beyond what you can actually believe in this moment, I'm going to come to you. And this right here changed my whole perspective because Jesus had every right not to give Thomas what he asked for. When we see Thomas and he's asking of this proof of Jesus, Jesus actually gives him the proof that he's asking for. Jesus actually says, touch my side, Thomas, touch my hands. And, and, and we see Thomas right here, who, 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 is, who is making this claim, and Jesus, who is satisfying the claim. And what happens is Jesus says, touch my wounds, and Jesus rebukes Thomas in the only way that Jesus can, which is with compassion. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, in that moment, was healed and restored by the graciousness, the mercy, and the compassion of Christ. And what I learned from this story is that God's solution to your doubt are his wounds. His wounds are the solution to your doubt. It says in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, and this is a passage that a lot of us know, but I saw it differently with fresh eyes for the first time. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and in his wounds we are healed. Now, when I read this passage, I always took that passage to mean physical healing, that He was physically bruised and crushed and wounded for us. And and I've seen God do miracles and I've seen God move mountains and I see God in this passage. And when I look at this passage, I always thought that this was like, oh, God's going to deliver us physically. God's going to do this for us physically. But really, what if God's healing is not physical, but it's here? What if... What if by his wounds we are healed isn't talking about our physical body, but it's talking about our doubt? And the question I had is, at the end of the day, why did Jesus actually keep his wounds? If we really think about it, the New Testament talks all about our glorified bodies. When we see him, we'll be like him. And and, and it was this goal that we're going to be like him when we see him. And I wonder why did Jesus, when he was resurrected at this point, when he was a physical body, when people touched him, he ate with them, why did he keep his wounds? I'm sure that God had the choice. I'm sure that he could have let them go. But why did Jesus keep his wounds? And the reason that Jesus kept his wounds is because of you. Jesus kept his wounds for you, not for him. Jesus doesn't need to be reminded of what he went through, but we do. Jesus doesn't need some evidence and things for us to believe, but we do. Jesus kept his wounds for you so that when we see him, When we see what he went through, we can be just like Thomas, and we can actually respond in faith. Because Jesus' last comments to Thomas were, do not doubt, but believe. And in a moment, Thomas was changed. It's a verse we didn't read, and Thomas says, it's the verse right after, it's verse 28. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was actually responding with the deity of Christ and the lordship of Christ, that he sees Jesus rightly for the first time again. And he says, by his wounds, now my response is faith. And if you're in a place where you're doubting, it's not that we need something else to to, to prove us right or God to come through in some miraculous way. Why? Because God already came through in a miraculous way. That Jesus already did everything that He would ever have to do for us. And by His wounds, we're not just healed in our bodies, but we're healed in our hearts. By His wounds, we're not just healed in our bodies, but we're healed in our minds. By His wounds, we're not just healed in our bodies, but we're healed in our emotions and our mental health, and maybe even for some of us in our doubts. That by His wounds, we are healed are healed, in our response, the proper response to his wounds, the proper response to what his wounds ultimately point to, which is the cross, is faith. It's worship. It's that my doubts compared to my God are nothing. My doubts when I see the wounds in his side and the wounds in his hand are nothing, and in a moment, Thomas's wondering was met with Jesus's wounds and reassurance was found in the cross and now Thomas had faith in Christ. For those of us that doubt our assurance the all the assurance that we need is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for the gift of grace. God, that you chose us, loved us when you didn't have to, but you wanted to. You brought us in. You made us a part of your family. And God, in a time when doubt might be creeping in the door for a lot of us, can we look to the cross And sometimes when we're looking for proof, God, can we be satisfied that you're giving us peace? Peace in the middle. Peace isn't ultimately necessary when we have everything that we need, but you give us peace in the middle. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you, God, are walking through our closed doors and presenting yourself to us, showing us, you in all of your glory, the real person of Jesus, who was pierced for us, crushed for us, wounded for us. God, that we might be healed for you.